Good morning. Would you please stand with me to read God's word? This morning we are reading from 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 9. But know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. For among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women, overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so these also resist the truth. They are men who are corrupt in mind and worthless in regard to their faith. But they will not make further progress, for their foolishness will be clear to all, as was the foolishness of Janus and Jambres. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful morning that you have brought us here together in person, God, that we might see one another and just reminded about the beautiful community that we have with this church and with this community around us. Um, Lord, I just pray for every single heart in this room and every single heart watching the service today, Lord, that you would protect our hearts, God, from just the evils of the world and any temptation, Lord, to to leave your, to, to not abide in you, Lord, that our hearts will always wholly seek after you. We love you. Amen. Thanks, Joanna. Um, so I really feel like that passage is pretty self-explanatory. I could probably just close this out with a word of prayer. If anybody has any questions, you can, you good, Tom? Um, as most of you know, if you've been here a while, The sermons that are preached from this platform are planned a year, sometimes even 18 months in advance. When I envisioned the day that some of us would return to this room, this really isn't the passage I envisioned preaching. It is a little bit clunky. There's some possibly inflammatory language, and we are going to get to all of that. I promise. But before we get there, we need to be reminded of the context in which this passage occurs and the context into which it was written. For the last few weeks, we've been walking through uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy in a sermon series where we're really exploring discipleship, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to make disciples. Now, if you have been following along with us, you know that, that this letter, this second letter to Timothy is probably the last letter Paul wrote. He was in chains in prison awaiting his execution in Rome. He used this as an opportunity to write a letter to his beloved apprentice, his child in the faith, his brother in Christ, Timothy, to encourage Timothy as Timothy was leading the church there in Ephesus, a church that Paul planted. Now, when you think about Timothy leading the church in Ephesus, it's also important to to recognize Timothy wouldn't have had a gorgeous building like this. He was not a mega church pastor. He didn't have a huge staff. He didn't have a huge budget. He didn't have a lot of support. There were probably 20 or 30 believers in Ephesus that he was leading. Timothy was, for lack of a better term, a small group leader of Christ followers there in Ephesus. 
Ephesus was a difficult place to serve. And with some of Paul's last words, he wanted to encourage his brother. Paul, at the beginning of this letter, encourages Timothy to fan the embers of his faith into flame. He has reminded Timothy of his heritage in the faith, of his calling in the Lord. He has reminded Timothy of the empowerment and love and discernment and self-control that comes with the Holy Spirit. Time and time again, he's pointed Timothy back to the pure gospel. said, hold on to that truth. Find your strength in God, not in your own capacity. And then last week, we looked at the last half of chapter 2 as Paul gives Timothy some incredibly practical advice. And that advice is, do not get caught up in meaningless disputes. Do not get caught up in arguments that don't matter. Don't die on the wrong hill. There's only one hill worth dying on, and that is the pure, true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, immediately following that advice, Paul launches into these words. But know this, Timothy, hard times will come in the last days. Timothy, don't don't get caught up in disputes that don't matter. Don't die on the wrong hill. Always point everything back to Jesus. But understand, times are hard and things are getting worse. And Paul uses that language in the last days. Some of your translations say in the end times. So often we read that and and it causes kind of some visceral reactions. Either, either you get scared. Nobody wants to talk about the last days, the end times. Some of us read those words, hear those words, and we roll our eyes. Because we've heard so many people talk about the end times and make predictions that haven't come true. So what happens to many of us is when we read those, we just kind of gloss over whatever comes next. I'm not worried about the end times. I'm worried about today. If we do that, we miss out on so much truth in the Scripture. Now, here's something that's important to realize about the end times, the last days. Whereas the Bible gives us some some very specific ideas about the last, last days. Those days that, that Jesus is going to return... The vast and overwhelming majority of the Bible's treatment of the last days is is that the end times are something that we are already living in. From the resurrection, I mean, from from the time of Jesus Christ, including the execution, crucifixion, and resurrection, all the way until his return. That is the last days. 1 John 2, John tells us, we're in the last days. These are the last hours. When Paul is writing to Timothy, when Paul says, hard times are coming, he is not talking about someday. He's talking about today. He's talking about where we are right now. This is not about someday. This is about 
the present day. Now, now it's kind of hard to, to grasp that or maybe wrap our minds around that, that, that idea that we are already there. I'm not saying that Jesus is going to come back by the end of this sermon, although he might. He also might come back 10,000 years from now. I do not know when that's going to happen. What I'm saying is we are now living in the already but not yet. Oscar Kuhlman has an incredible analogy. He uses World War II to kind of explain to us where we are. And he differentiates D-Day from VE Day. Now, by D-Day, the Russians, if you don't know your World War II history, they're already pressing in from the east. The Western allies have won a great victory in North Africa. They're pushing up the boot of Italy. And on June 6th, 1944, 1.3 million troops and thousands of tons of war materials were dumped on the European continent from the West. War historians will tell you, that day, the war was won. That day was the decisive victory, and how it would end was inevitable. Now, as we know, after D-Day, what did the Nazis do? Did they surrender? Did Hitler throw his hands up and say, you know what, guys, I apologize. I have made a terrible mistake. Did he try to negotiate for peace? No. In the days and months that followed, D-Day was some of the worst, most brutal, most tragic fighting of the entire war. It's the Battle of the Bulge. It's the Battle for Berlin, so on and so forth, until inevitably... VE Day came and the war in Europe ended. What Kuhlman tells us is that Christ's first coming, including his death and resurrection, that was D Day for all humanity. The decisive victory had been won, the end was inevitable. But our VE day, the war doesn't end until his return. Until then, we are in the last days, as Paul is describing in this passage. And a lot of it won't be pretty. And Paul uses this as an opportunity to give Timothy a warning. He says things are going, things, things are hard now, but they're going to even get harder. Why? Well, Paul tells us in these first couple of verses, know this, Timothy, hard times will come in the last days for people. Things are going to get harder. Why? People. That's why. Paul then gives this warning in the form of this extensive list of super terrible qualities that ends with stay away from these folks. Augustine, who was an early church theologian, said that all of mankind's miseries can be traced back to our disordered loves. We've got the things that we love all out of order. We take these good things and we turn them into God things. We take these good things in our life 
We put them first in our life. We love them most in our life. To use biblical terms, we worship these good things that are not God himself. But what the Bible tells us is that God is our highest good. All other goods flow out of our love of God, flow out of God himself. True joy, meaning, purpose, all are found in God and in loving God. And everything collapses when we get our loves out of order, when we seek our value, our worth, our significance. In anything other than him, all of our behaviors flow out of those love. To put it simply, Pastor Tim Chaddock in in describing this passage says, Paul is teaching Timothy and Paul is teaching us that if our loves are out of order, our lives are out of order. And Paul gives this long list of vices and evils to illustrate that. And the key to understanding this list in the first verses of 2 Timothy chapter 3 is understanding properly ordered love. Let's look back at this list. I'm going to read the first four verses of 2 Timothy chapter 3. But know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanders, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good. Traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So as he gives this laundry list... He sandwiches this list in between these three great disordered loves. Love of self, love of money, love of pleasure. Modern psychology would categorize these things as narcissism, love of self, materialism, love of money, and hedonism, love of pleasure. All of these other vices and evils and characteristics flow out of one of those disordered loves. Narcissism, the love of self, this temptation to be something. When we love ourselves more than anything else, it is so easy to justify our behaviors in reference to our own desires. I am the most important thing on the planet. It is easy to be boastful. It is easy to be proud. It is easy to be demeaning because of my importance relative to your importance. Paul talks about disobedience to parents. This is is a matter of authority. When we love ourselves more than anything else, we have a great deal of problems with authority. We lash out when our freedoms are restricted because I am the only authority that matters. We become unforgiving because the greatest evil in the world is when one offends me. As as lovers of money, materialism, as materialists, when, when we fall into that type of disordered love, it becomes incredibly evil, uh, easy to justify unhealthy work rhythms. 
Shady business dealings in gray areas, all because it's a means to the greatest good in our life, which is obtaining stuff. Because we believe that that stuff, that money, that success, that will make us something. That will satisfy us. That will fulfill us. The love of pleasure, this idea of hedonism, it allows us to justify pursuit of whatever it is that's going to make us happy in that moment because that is the ultimate goal. Our pleasure is the ultimate goal and we become incredibly ungrateful when we don't feel joy or pleasure in the given moment because it's my right to be happy and feel pleasure. I deserve it. Virtually every moral failure flows out of one of these disordered loves. And we all know it. The world knows it. Every single commercial you're confronted with, every commercial you see on TV, every ad that pops up in your social media feed, every commercial you hear on the radio, all are aimed at one of these disordered loves. Every single one of them tells you, if you just have this thing, If you just buy this car, if you just eat this food, if you just go on this vacation, you will be so happy, you will be so fulfilled, you will finally be satisfied, you will finally be something. The problem is these pursuits are endless because inevitably... They leave us unfulfilled and unsatisfied. My son, who just turned five, he has an incredibly difficult time controlling his anger, controlling his rage sometimes, controlling his emotions when he is denied the thing that he wants in that exact moment. Because that thing is going to give him pleasure right then. That's the thing that's going to fill him up. Now we know the problem is when he is given access to whatever that thing is, it fills him up for about five minutes. And then he's on to the next thing and it never ever ends. We see in our children what we find in our own heart. And the only response to these these symptoms that are a result of our disordered loves is a life that flows out of a love of God. A life that is a result of finding our identity in Him. I am a child of God. That's what I am, right? It is that life that flows out of a love of God that results in humility in contrast to narcissism. Generosity in contrast to materialism. Integrity in contrast to hedonism. Our our life flows from our love. Now you listen to me say all of these things. and, And I'm sure Timothy, as he's receiving these things from Paul, thinks the same thing, which is, oh man, you're so right. I can't stand those people. They drive me crazy. 
But look, look at the end of this list at verse 5. As Paul goes down the laundry list of these evils and vices that flow out of a disordered love, verse 5 says that these people with this disordered love, they are holding on to the form of godliness, but denying its power. That is such an interesting verse. They are holding on to the form of godliness, but denying its power. Power. You see, Paul isn't talking to Timothy about folks out there. He isn't saying, Timothy, the culture in Ephesus is so bad and so hedonistic. They all have their loves all out of whack and all out of disorder, and this is what they turn into. No, Paul is talking to Timothy about people inside the church. Paul is talking about us. Paul is talking about those that clothe themselves in a false godliness, those that clothe themselves in religiosity, but they don't truly believe in the power of the gospel because there's no internal change. There might be change in an outward form, but there's nothing internal. Paul says, avoid these people, not not because they're sinners, because if that was the case, we wouldn't be able to interact with anyone, ever, because we all fall into that category. Paul says, avoid these people because they can be incredibly destructive. Avoid these people because they can do incredible damage. Avoid those that have clothed themselves in religion to hide their disordered loves because they are the ones that are going to tear your church apart from the inside out. And then Paul gives us an example in verses 6 and 7. For among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women, overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions. That is a hard verse to read. That is a hard verse to hear. There is some language that that causes some kind of visceral reactions in many of us. So first, let's talk about what Paul isn't saying. Paul is not insulting women. Paul is not making a blanket statement that all women are vulnerable, all women are gullible. Paul is speaking into a very specific context there in Ephesus. The women were unable to work outside of the home. Many of the women in the church would have roots in the pagan culture. Many of them were racked with guilt about past sins and present sins. And you had these deceivers, these men, these false teachers that Paul's been warning Timothy about both in his first letter and here in this letter And many of these false teachers are men. They are despicable. They are depraved. Paul is also not saying all men are despicable and depraved. Although, I do think it's important 
to look at this and realize that depraved men have been taking advantage of vulnerable women forever. It's a tragedy that cannot be ignored. Specifically, what Paul is talking about in this context is the false teachers that are using their false gospel. They're using this, their clothes of a, of a false godliness to manipulate those that are vulnerable. To create a dependence on their far, false gospel. To tear the church apart. It's depraved. But with that example, Paul leads into a great encouragement for Timothy. If you were paying attention while Joanna was reading this morning, you may be thinking right now, Hannah, I did not hear an encouragement in this passage. It's there, I promise. Paul uses that example and and he leads into this incredible encouragement to Timothy, which is to say God is still on the throne. And in order to illustrate the point that God is sovereign and all-powerful and on the throne, Paul points Timothy back to the curious case of Jonas and Jambres. So throughout this letter, Paul has not been afraid to name names. He has not been afraid to call people out. If you go back to the very first chapter, Paul calls out Phagellus and Hermogenes as people that that had abandoned him, turned their back on him. In the second chapter, he calls out Hymenaeus and Philetus as, as false teachers whose teachings were spreading like gangrene within the church. And then Paul calls out the names of Janus and Jambres. But unlike the other four men that he mentioned, Janus and Jambres were not members of the church in Ephesus. In fact, Janus and Jambres had died long ago because they existed thousands of years prior in the time of Moses. This would have been a story that was incredibly familiar to Timothy, to those in Ephesus. You see, Janus and Jambres were the magicians, the sorcerers that were called by Pharaoh in Exodus chapters 7 and 8. If you're not familiar with the story, we've got Moses and his brother Aaron. And they've been called by God to approach Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world who had enslaved God's people. And they were told by God, go to Pharaoh and demand my people be set free. Not surprisingly, Pharaoh denies this request. So Moses and Aaron at at first perform miracles. You remember they throw the staff on the ground and it turns into the snake. And that leads into the famous 10 plagues that eventually result in the exodus, the freedom of God's people. Well, in an attempt to prove that God isn't that powerful, an attempt to prove that Moses and Aaron were just kind of performing smoke and mirrors, Pharaoh brings in his own magicians, Jonas and Jambres. 
And Jonas and Jambres are able to mimic the, that first miracle, the, the throwing of the uh, staff on the ground that turns into a snake. That's Exodus chapter 7. They were even able to mimic the first two plagues, the blood and the frogs. Now, they were defeated by the third plague, the gnats. Which is crazy to me because if you've ever sat in my backyard, you would think the gnats are a lot easier to conjure than the blood or the frogs. But for whatever reason, Jonas and Jambres just couldn't make the gnats appear. That was the moment they were defeated and that began the spiral that ended in the exodus, the freedom of God's people. Now, despite the fact that his magicians could no longer mimic these plagues, mimic these miracles, Pharaoh didn't initially give up. The plagues kept coming, plagues 3 through 10. They got progressively worse until we have the angel of death and Pharaoh could no longer deny the power of God and, his pe- and, and God's people were set free. Now, you may be asking, Why? As Paul sits in chains in the hole in the ground waiting his execution, does he use his last letter in talking about disordered loves and false teachers and point Timothy back to Moses and the Exodus? Glad you asked. Janus and Jambres. They opposed Moses because they were on the side of the oppressors. They were on the side of the enslavers. They wanted to use their power to keep the Hebrews under the cruel burden of slavery. The false teachers in Ephesus Those with disordered loves that had clothed themselves in a false godliness but denied its power, didn't believe the true power of the gospel. Those that were taking advantage of the vulnerable. uh, Those that were tearing the church apart from the inside out. Their message was similar. They had a parallel motivation. Taking advantage of those overwhelmed with the burden of sin. They presented a message that enslaves. They looked at people with a troubled conscience and gave them a message that would never set them free. It leads a burdened people. We see in verse 7, to learn and learn and learn, but never be able to come to the truth that would set them free. You see, with this example of Janus and Jambres, what Paul says is, they don't win. God is still on the throne. God is sovereign. It is the true gospel, that hill worth dying on. That's the gospel that doesn't enslave. That's the gospel that redeems. That's the gospel that sets people free. That's Paul's encouragement to Timothy. It's the greatest encouragement we can hear. 
It's the gospel, the true gospel, the pure gospel of Jesus Christ that wins. The gospel that has already won. The gospel of truth and love and mercy and redemption and freedom. The gospel that is available to every one of us free of charge. If you have not heard that gospel, let me tell it to you this morning. Jesus Christ, 100% divine, 100% human, perfect in every single way, sacrificed himself to pay the price for the sins of all of mankind, died for you, and then defeated death so that you can live with him. That's it. That's the whole thing. It is in receiving that free gift of grace that was offered to us that we get to spend eternity with a living Savior. But here's the really cool part. That life isn't just a promise of eternity, but it's, but it's a life that starts right now. If you don't know that Savior, it would be our great honor to introduce you to him this morning. He loves you. He's here for you. And you can know him. Would you pray with me? God, as we pray every single week, we are humbled and we are amazed by your presence with us, and we are grateful that your presence is not relegated to this room, to this place. You are within us, you surround us in every single nook and cranny of our lives and our existence. We are so grateful for your son. Executed the great defeater of death so that through him we may live. May our love always be in you and is an outflow of that love that we live. We pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen.